Uh, this is what you get to listen to for 40 minutes. Sorry. I'm not sick. It's just when I do get sick, this happens. And so yesterday I couldn't have talked at all, so I'm glad it's at least halfway back. I called John this morning and I told him, well, I sound like a combination of Darth Vader and Yoda. And so John said, well, he'll preach if I need him to. And I said, well, we'll, we'll make a game time call when I get here. We'll figure it out. And we both agreed it sounded like I could make it through. Well, let's pray. I'm going to pray for the teaching and for my ability to get through it. I hope you have the patience to listen to a voice like this for 40 minutes. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for a new year, Father. Another opportunity to spend time in your word and with your, with your fellowship of, of believers, Father, with the saints. And we actually would pray, Father, that this might be the final year. That if it be your will, we might join you in person this year. As John said at the end of Revelation, we ask that you would come quickly. But until that day, we are content, Father, to rest in your grace and in your word. So, Father, as we go back into the scripture this morning, I ask that you would uh, open our eyes and our hearts, show us the meaning of what is there today. And, and most of all, Father, and as I always pray, help us to know what to do with what we learn. Convict us, Father, and drive us forward into a, a Christ-like life. I pray this, asking for strength to preach. In Jesus' name, amen. And if I cough or if I take a moment, you'll understand, I'm sure. All right, open your Bibles with me to chapter 19. And in chapter 19, we pick up again today in the study of Abraham and Lot and Sodom at about verse 27. We've been in this chapter now for some time, so it's been long enough that I suspect some of us have started to lose sight of what God is actually doing in this chapter, what we've been looking at. So let's take a few minutes to review. First, we know God set about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because he wanted to set an example for future generations of how God views sin and what will come of sin in this world. And then secondly, we know God invited Abraham to join him in on this plan to learn about it so that he would understand something about God's character, about his nature. And in the way that he learns this, he will in turn teach future generations of Israel, about God. Not only that he is loving and merciful, but also that he is a God of wrath and judgment for sin. Third, we watch Abraham respond to that opportunity in prayer. And in the way he prayed, asking God to spare the righteous, and the way God responded, agreeing to that prayer, we had an opportunity to see how God works with us in accomplishing his work. And then we watched over the last three weeks of study as God did everything that he intended to do, and yet he did everything he planned to do, kept his promises to Abraham, and all the while gave opportunity for Abraham to contribute or to participate. Now that's one part of what we've been learning. But there was another story altogether, the story of Lot. And as we watched Lot in his life, we learned a lot about that man too. We saw him as a man of faith, but a man worn down by his association with a sinful world. He is a man who lived a life of compromise with the world, and as a result of that compromise, he suffered a lot. He suffered great loss, both in this world and in the next, I would argue. 
And then we watch God dealing with Lot, as only a father would deal with his children, bringing discipline, allowing the consequences of his sin to rest on him and his family. So with all of this done, though, there's another picture that we need to pay attention to. There's a picture embedded into this story. It's a picture of how God deals with both Jewish and Gentile people in his plan for salvation. I've alluded to this at times in the past, but I think we're finally at a point now where we can see this picture in total. Because just as God befriended the man Abraham, he has also entered into a covenant and formed a relationship with the descendants of Abraham, that is the Jewish people. And God will remain true to his promises to that people, just as he did to Abraham. And just as Lot, who is a Gentile, is a relative of Abraham, and by his association with Abraham, he sees blessing, likewise, there will be a Gentile people that will have an association with the Jewish people, having trusted in the promises that God delivered the Jewish people, that Gentile people will also benefit by association. And of course, I'm talking about the Gentile church. We are grafted in, Paul says, and we become blessed by that association. And just as God brought judgment against the sinful cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, likewise, he will bring judgment against the sinful world that does not know him. And just as God rescued a few righteous Gentiles, right before the coming judgment. Likewise, he promises to rescue the few righteous Gentiles at the point that he comes for them prior to the world judgment. You see the parallels? So Lot was plucked out of a city right before destruction because he was righteous. Likewise, the church in this future day will be plucked out of the world shortly before it suffers judgment for sin. We call that the rapture. So in this study of Lot and Abraham, we see in the details of the story a picture that's been embedded for us of how God will, for his favor to Abraham, rescue a righteous remnant within the Gentile world, brought to faith by God and blessed by their association with the Jewish fathers, with Abraham. Paul describes this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15, when he says, For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. There's another interesting parallel. Did you notice? Just as Lot and his family were rescued by the ministry of angels. Likewise, when the church is taken off the earth, it comes, we're told, by the actions of the archangel. God is showing us in the story a picture of how he will operate in a future day for the sake of the whole world. Now, we ended our study in Genesis looking at Lot's wife. Last time we studied, Lot's wife made the mistake of disobeying the instructions of the angels. She looked behind her, on the city of Sodom, looking back with a longing for it, and as a result, she turned to salt. And because she turned back, her true heart was exposed. We came to see her for who she really was, like the rest of Sodom. And therefore, she shared their fate. And thus now, Lot's family has been reduced to three. Lot and his two daughters. 
A worldly family alone in the world with nothing. But what about Abraham? You know, our story here began with the Lord coming to meet Abraham in a tent. Then it followed with Abraham's compelling prayer. And now we've watched as the scene in Sodom has unfolded. So now that the city's been destroyed, what do you think Abraham has learned through this entire experience? Well, look with me in verse 27. Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. All right, now just remember that the previous day was the day in which Abraham saw the Lord and made his prayer requesting that if ten righteous were found in that city, the whole city would be spared. God agreed to that. Now, obviously, we know that Abraham's intent in that prayer was to save Lot and his family. But his request was, if you find ten, save the whole city. Saving the city was simply his way of accomplishing the goal of saving Lot. But nonetheless, that was the specific request he made. Now, here we are on the following morning. And Abraham awakens early. He goes all the way to the edge of his settlement where he and the Lord had stood when he made that request. And it's from this vantage point that he can look about 20 miles southeast into the valley where these cities lay. And as he looks down into that distant valley, we're told he sees thick, billowing smoke just pouring up from the valley like the smoke of a furnace. Now, this isn't some small little wisp of smoke in the distance. This looks like an aircraft has gone into the ground. This is a big, billowing black fire. Can't miss it, even from 20 miles. So if God wanted to teach Abraham a lesson about how God responds to sin, then I think if we can see what Abraham was seeing at this moment, we can all agree, mission accomplished. There's no doubt that Abraham understands what comes to the world for sin. He will have this indelible memory of what happens to the depraved when God chooses to bring judgment. And he's going to teach that lesson, I'm sure, to all his children. So the point in this exercise from God's perspective was to teach Abraham something so that Abraham could teach his children. But what else was going through Abraham's mind, do you think? What else is he asking himself? Well, the obvious question is, what happened a lot? He's standing 20 miles away from the event. There's no cell phone. There's no telegraph. Lot's not in a phone booth somewhere saying, hey, uncle, I'm okay. It's all right. I'm okay. He's run off into Zoar, remember? It is entirely likely, if not a guarantee, that Abraham had no understanding of what Lot's disposition was. Certainly not now, and maybe not ever. So as Abraham stares at the smoke, would he have concluded that God did not find Ten righteous in the cities, and therefore the cities were destroyed. Well, of course that's what he would conclude, because that's absolutely true. God did not find ten righteous in these cities, because there were not ten to be found. Had he found them, he would have kept his word and saved the city, and therefore he destroyed them. But what Abraham doesn't know is that God still gave Abraham the desires of his heart concerning Lot. Ironically, Abraham has received 
what he desired, but he doesn't know it. Isn't that interesting? He does not know that God has done not only everything that he promised, but more. He saved Lot. And because of Abraham's prayer, we get to know something we would not have known otherwise. We know without a doubt that there were not even ten righteous to be found among the four cities that were destroyed in this judgment. Therefore, Abraham's prayer contributed to God's work in the sense that it communicates to us today the extreme depravity of those cities. Now, I wonder if Abraham was standing there at this moment resentful or angry at God. Because in his mind, Lot is gone. Now, the text doesn't tell us anything about Abraham's state of mind, but I think the reason we have verse 29 included in this narrative is to make sure that we leave this story with the right perspective. Moses says in that verse that God remembered Abraham, which means God understood Abraham's heart and he wanted to show favor or grace toward Abraham. He rescued Lot, which is all Abraham wanted. But God wanted Abraham and I think us today to understand and to remember not the rescue more than anything, but the judgment. That the overriding lesson from this story is not the fact that he rescued Lot. That's true. But the more important lesson is that there is powerful judgment waiting for sin. And that's the intended lesson. That's the memory he wants Abraham to carry forward. That's what he wants him to teach. And that's what we have to remember as well. Both are true. But the thing we remember when we hear the words Sodom and Gomorrah is not so much Lot, but God's wrath for sin. I think we live in an age in which many churches, many pastors, have moved away from an honest, forthright teaching concerning the reality of God's wrath for sin. There are very famous, well-known pastors with very large congregations that state plainly that they do not preach about sin or wrath for sin. They only want to preach about happiness and good things because they want their congregations to feel good. It's a temporary, meaningless kind of feeling. That's not going to make them feel better in the judgment day. Now, perhaps one day Abraham does learn that Lot was saved. That's a nice thing to hope. We don't know for sure. But what if Abraham never learns of Lot's rescue? Would that lead us to think any less of God? or of God's goodness, does it require that God reveal to Abraham what he did in order for God to receive the credit, so to speak, for his goodness? I mean, have you ever considered that at times God answers your prayers and my prayers in ways that we never get to know or hear about? Have you ever considered that? Perhaps you received exactly what you prayed for at some prior time, maybe even without having spoken of it properly as Abraham did here. Perhaps God did that work in secret, to his glory and to his name. Perhaps he was preventing us from trying to take any credit in what we did to help him, so to speak. We need to be careful about assuming that we are always going to be the audience for God's handiwork in response to our prayers. I tend to believe that a lot more gets done without our knowledge than with. I think that's why I have such an appreciation for the work of Nancy and others to support us in a prayer chain. 
It's so easy to get those prayer requests and not think much of them in the moment. By the same token, it only takes a second in most cases to think a prayer when you do get the request. But how are we to know what we're doing through that obedient work? The fact that we don't always get the response of what happened should not change our desire, our willingness to engage in prayer. Because even if we don't see the final result, we can trust God is at work for his glory and for the good of his name through our prayer. Now, our prayers, we've learned already, don't change God, but they always have impact, whether on us or someone else, as God chooses. And you've got to be prepared to offer them, even if you don't have an expectation of a direct and visible answer in your life. In fact, sometimes it may appear that our request has been denied. I think that's the situation we're watching here with Abraham. Even though his prayer was granted, he may walk away from this moment assuming it wasn't. And even if we hear nothing back from God, it doesn't mean God has failed us. It just means that his timeline can be a lot longer sometimes than our patience. There's a story I heard of a pastor, a youth pastor, true story. He tells of an encounter that he had with one of his ex-students. He wrote this, he said, I ran into an old high school student who was part of the youth group I led in the early part of the decade. And this student had a rough life since high school graduation, hooked on drugs, in and out of trouble, kicked out of his house. My heart was grieved for him. And whenever I received updates about his life over the years, it was always bad news. But then yesterday, he said, I ran into that same former student, and he was clean, he was sober, he had a big smile on his face, he had a new commitment to follow Christ. He said, it made my day. Then the next day, he said, I was in my office cleaning out old files in the church office, and interestingly, I found a prayer request list from the same student group that this young man had used to be a part of. This is a list from six years earlier, he said. He said, I don't know why it was there. I don't know why I saved it. And I had completely forgotten I had it. And on that prayer list was a written prayer by this same young man from six years earlier. And here's what it said. Dear God, help me to walk in your footsteps. Let me understand what is right and wrong. Give me the wisdom and obedience to do the right things. Help me to get through the consequences of my actions. I know how much I mean to you, Lord, and I want to grow closer to you, and thank you for your forgiveness and understanding. Amen. And the pastor says, after six years, it looks like God has answered this prayer. I mean, I bet if I went through the room, virtually every one of us could relate a story of similar kind, whether about ourselves or someone else. Parents who prayed for kids, Husbands who prayed for wives, wives who prayed for husbands. Things that took decades in some cases. And in the middle of those moments, we're like Abraham. We're standing on a cliff looking into a valley full of smoke and we're thinking, it's over. And then a future day comes and God answers the prayer. As you walk with the Lord, the more you'll realize how poor a judge, a character you are in speaking of God and what he's willing to do. We always sell him short. We assume he's not going to give us what we want. We assume the answer is no because it didn't happen fast enough. And sometimes the answer is no, but for good reason. We don't have a big enough picture, a big enough perspective. We can't see everything God sees. We don't know and understand everything God knows. We can't understand how a single event will impact the future of all things that God is at work in doing. You remember Peter, when he hears from Jesus that Jesus says he has to go to Jerusalem and die. Peter stands in front of the Lord and rebukes him and says, 
far be it that you would have this happen to you, Lord. And what does Jesus say? You're being Satan right now, Peter. Because you don't understand the big picture. The best thing in the world for me to do is go to Jerusalem and die. We don't understand everything but God does. So we are told in Scripture to trust Him knowing He is good. So when the answers come back appearing to be bad, to be the wrong answer, like in the case of Abraham here. I remember the words of, of Job. Yet though he slay me, I will still praise him. Now finally, the story of Lot, as we conclude it today, it has this really sad footnote. Look at verse 30 with me. Lot went up from Zoar and stayed in the mountains. And his two daughters with him, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar, and he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. Let's pause there for a minute, because remember, he was told to go to the mountains, but he asked the angels, can we go to Zoar instead, please? It's only a small little town, can't hurt much, can it? Because he was so enamored, so wedded to the, to the world, to its pleasures, its comforts. He couldn't stand the thought of walking away from it all. And so the angel said, okay, go to Zoar. And in one verse, we're told, he promptly left Zoar and went to the mountains after all. And we can imagine why that had to happen, right? It says here he's afraid, and it makes sense when you think about it. Zoar is the only city of the five that were in this valley that's still around now. So when one surviving family from one of the other cities, the only surviving family, wanders into Zoar. What do you think the city population is thinking when they see this one family, the only family that managed to get out of that judgment, coming into their city? Undoubtedly, they reacted quite negatively to their appearance, right? You would have probably assumed this family's cursed, and wherever they go, the judgment's going to follow. Don't come into our city. And I'm sure within a very short period of time, Zoar made it uncomfortable for this family to be there, and they had to leave. Now, the angels had told them, go to the mountains. But Lot wasn't practiced at listening to the voice of the Lord. And so he found his way to the mountains the hard way. I like to say that a lot to people. I say, look, you can obey God the easy way, the hard way. But he's going to get what he wants one way or the other. And there's a lot of irony to Lot's situation. He rejected a nomadic life, the one that his uncle had established when he came from Ur because he preferred the comfort and the sophistication of city life. And now, he's living in a cave, which is a lesser style of life than the wealthy nomadic lifestyle that his uncle still has. His sinful choices have caught up with him. And he now is in an even worse situation than what he had at the opportunity to obey God. There's a great lesson in that. The pursuit of the world may achieve a short-term benefit of some kind, but inevitably, it's going to lead to long-term losses. If you remain in the course God sets, there may be a short-term sacrifice, but there is long-term reward. So Lot and his daughters now are in the caves. Can you imagine how pitiful these threesome must have looked? They have no possessions. They didn't leave with anything from the city. They have what appears to be no future. They're destitute. They're rejected by the very people that they sought to live among, to be a part of. But for Lot's daughters, the calamity is even worse. Lot himself, he's an old guy, he's had his life, he's had his family. He's at the end of his life, more or less. But Lot's daughters, they're just starting out. They're young women, and they're living in a day 
when young women hoped for one thing more than anything else, to be married and to have sons. And right now, without husbands, living in a world where they are a pariah to the people that they know, the place they grew up, they are completely without hope. They have no prospect in their own mind of how they're going to find a husband and start a life. And so the daughters make other plans. Look at verse 31. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. On the following day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son, called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. As for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Amin. He is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. All right, so the firstborn here hatches this, this great idea. She says, there's not another man on earth to unite with us in marriage. Now, we know she did not mean that literally. And how do we know that? Well, she just left Zoar. She knows there's men in Zoar. It's not that she means we think the world's been destroyed. It's not that she assumes that. What she's saying with exaggerated terms is there's no other man that we know of in the world who would want to have anything to do with us. The men of the other four cities are gone, and the men of the one remaining city want nothing to do with us. So for these women, now it appears that they have no other hope. What she's really saying, though, whether she knows it or not, is that there are no men left in the world we know, in the world we love, because the world of the valley won't have anything to do with them, but there's still Abraham's household. There's still Uncle Abraham. He lives just up the way. I mean, that's an option. It's never gone away. But these daughters now are suffering in the shadow that was cast by their father, by Lot. He raised them in Sodom. And as the saying goes, you can take the girl out of Sodom, but you can't take the Sodom out of the girl. And as Christians, you have to recognize this is a basic principle. You can think of it as a principle simply of family dynamics or psychology, but it also happens to be a biblical principle. Our sin will have consequences not only for ourselves, but for others. And we bring those consequences upon others when we make bad choices. Now, I am not saying, to be clear, that everyone's problems are a fault of the parent. I'm not saying that they are not culpable for their own decisions. I'm not saying that we can do all the right things and we'll always end up with a perfect child. I think we all know from life experience it doesn't work that way. But I am saying that when we do make the wrong choices, like in the case of Lot, his choice to live in an ungodly place like Sodom, then it shouldn't surprise us when those decisions have consequences for others, including our children. And that's what we're watching here. They hatch this ungodly, incestuous plan 
Because from what they know, having grown up in Sodom, this is what people do. And if they do not know the Lord and His Word or His expectations, so they see no alternatives. Their plan, simple enough, is get Dad drunk. When he's lost his senses, we'll entice him into this incestuous encounter. First, the older does this, then the younger on successive nights. The text makes a point here of emphasizing that Lot knew nothing of these events. I think that's there to remind us that Lot, as a righteous man, we're told, would not have participated willingly if he had known what was happening. But though the shame rests squarely on the daughters, Lot is not without some culpability here. First and foremost, he raised his daughters and chose to live in an environment where they would develop into such morally corrupt people. So his fault traces back to that earlier point. Secondly, he became drunk. Twice. Lot is going to have plenty to answer for in his day of judgment. And as his story comes to end here in the scripture, it's safe to say, based on how Jesus references this same man, that Lot becomes a poster child in scripture for the worldly, disobedient saint. If you want to study a case study for what it looks like when a man or woman of faith walks away from the Lord and gives themselves over to the world, just look at Lot. God didn't become unfaithful to Lot. God did not walk away from Lot. God did not forsake Lot. But God didn't rescue Lot from every mistake he made. That's not the God we serve. God is not in the position of acting like bumpers in a bumper car game, preventing us from crashing into one another. Now, there is a certain instructive quality to sin. And as we've said in here before, we can be a witness to God through our godliness, or we can be a witness to God through the train wreck of a life that God uses to preach on the errors of sin. It's up to us. Lot becomes that poster child of a disobedient man whose life was the train wreck to warn others. Did you notice in this story how similar the account of Lot is to the account of Noah? Have you noticed some parallels? Noah, we know, was a righteous man by faith, like Lot. He, like Lot, was rescued from a disaster which came upon the world because of extreme sin. After that event, what happened to Noah? He became drunk, remember? And he's taken advantage of by his children. So the events are similar, but so are the outcomes. Each of these stories brings us to a similar conclusion about God's judgment with regard to sin, but also in the fact that God's actions did not deal with the ultimate problem. The flood did not cure the sin of Noah. And the rescue of Lot out of Sodom did not cure the sin of that man's heart. Both Noah and Lot retained their sin natures, even after judgment. And therefore, the conclusion you draw from both stories is, there is yet some greater solution for sin that must come from God. There's something else. And of course, we know what that something else is. It's the Messiah himself who must come and remove our sin. The second thing that's similar is, each episode ended with the offspring bearing the brunt of God's anger for their sin. In the case of Noah, remember, 
the grandson Canaan is cursed because of the sin of his father in the way that he shamed his father. Well, the Canaanites later entice Israel into harlotry. In the case of Lot, there's a similar pattern. Lot's daughters give birth to these two boys, the father of the Moabites and the Ammonites. These two nations of people become two of Israel's greatest enemies in Scripture, and God will use them as well to chastise the nation of Israel. Where does Abraham fit into this? Well, do you remember the instructions Abraham received when he was told to leave Ur? He was told not to take his family, but he took his nephew. And because he took his nephew, the Ammonites and the Moabites will eventually become thorns in the side of the descendants of Abraham. In both the story of Noah and Lot, man's sin gives rise to future consequences for God's people. God ultimately turns it to good, but not before he chastises and disciplines his own people through these events. Keep that in mind the next time we make decisions, even seemingly very small ones. If it's a decision to walk away from the Lord and sin, don't underestimate the consequences. Go with me in prayer. Father, thank you that I was able to finish the teaching. Thank you for your word and for the examples of Abraham and Lot. Father, help us take away the two-sided message that you've given us through this teaching and through this chapter that we see your goodness and your mercy and your grace that you come to the aid of the righteous by faith that you do not forsake us even when we have walked away from you that you never forget us that you keep your word and you honor your promises and that your promise can extend beyond our horizon and that your faithfulness Father may not result in us seeing the work you do. But we can take trust, Father, that you will do as you intend and that goodness will result. But also, Father, help us to see the other side of the story and recognize that our sin has consequences and we must consider carefully everything we say and do, not take lightly the mercy that you offer, not abuse the grace we've been given, that we would set an example for our families and for the world of what godliness looks like. As we start a new year, Father, help us to keep both of these things in mind, that we would not become harsh, legalistic, nor permissive and licentious, but that we would speak truth in love, live according to the grace that we've received in the way we show grace and mercy to others but at all times remain God-fearing and conscious of our judgment day. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.